Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, and my guest today is John Bailey, ASC. John is a cinematographer, director, and film scholar whose credits include American Gigolo, Groundhog Day, In the Line of Fire, The Big Chill, and Swimming to Cambodia, among many others. He's the author of a must-read blog on the ASC website and has collaborated multiple times with directors Paul Schrader, Lawrence Kasdan, and Ken Quapis. Today he's here to talk about one of his early triumphs, Ordinary People. Released in 1980, Ordinary People marked the directorial debut of actor Robert Redford, who took home an Oscar for the film. It also won Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. A restrained yet deeply moving portrait of a family struggling to hold together in the wake of tragedy, Ordinary People has an emotional purity reminiscent of Bergman and Ozu, but its style and effects are unique and specific, and I'm very excited to have John Bailey here to discuss his work on the picture. Uh, let's start by discussing how Ordinary People first came to you. I mean, at this point in your career, you'd been in the industry for a while, but you'd only been director of photography on a few features. The most notable, I think, was American Gigolo, and I don't even know if that had come out yet when you got the job on Ordinary People. So, uh, you know, it seems like a pretty juicy assignment. I'm curious how Redford came to you, and how do you know how he was aware of your work, and what led him to, get him to choose you for this movie? Well, I think, Jimmy, uh, Bob couldn't have been that aware of my work uh, as a cinematographer because I don't think American Gigolo had been released yet. But as I recall, one of the producers on the very first studio feature that I photographed, as opposed to some of the really low-budget independents, uh, was Tony Bill. And uh, Tony was a very successful producer at the time, and he was still acting, you know, like Bob. And um, I had done a film for Warner Brothers, my first feature, uh, studio feature, called Boulevard Nights. Tony and I had a really good relationship. We've continued to be friends. And as I recall, uh, he may have talked to Bob, saying, you know, John is somebody who uh, does not necessarily represent an entrenched kind of way of doing things. He's on a learning curve, which maybe, you know, actually made, made Bob Redford very open because he was a man at the height of his acting career, uh, had worked with many powerful cinematographers such as Owen Roisman on a number of films, certainly many films with Sidney Pollack. And he was a veteran in his own way, even though it was going to be his first film as a director. And I think he felt confident enough that uh, he could essentially go with a younger, less experienced cinematographer and maybe sort of find a kind of uh, new energy there. Uh, I think Tony spoke very well of me. Uh, obviously, I met with Bob, and uh, we hit it off very, very well. And uh, not that many first-time directors at that time, anyway, would have necessarily hired an inexperienced cinematographer. But I think Redford had certainly the experience himself and the confidence to do that. So that's, that's, how I, that's how I remember it. And in terms of your personal connection to the material, were you familiar with the book before the movie came to you? Had you read the book? Uh, what, was your, what were your initial thoughts about the book and the, the script? And I hadn't read the book. I knew about the book. Judith Guest's novel was uh, very, very much talked about at the time. 
it fit in very much with something that has interested me, not just at that time, but before then, and it's continued to be a dominant uh, attraction and theme in the films I've, I've chosen to do, and that is uh, the story of the nuclear family. I mean, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, father, mother, daughter, son, but the idea of, of, of a tightly knit nuclear unit and what happens to them, you know, in dramatic and stressful situations. And so Ordinary People was something that appealed to me very, very much at the time. I remember when I read the screenplay by Alvin Sargent, it just touched me uh, on an emotional level. You know, screenplays are a kind of disembodied uh, form. Uh, it's not poetry, you know, there's no sense of metaphor usually. Character is very sketchily driven, you know, uh, or defined in, in a screenplay. Usually it's just the dialogue. I, I just saw, you know, I, I heard it and kind of could see the world that was being defined. It was certainly not the world that I grew up in as a you know working class kid, but I understood it. And I understood that the kind of uh, bedrock truths of a family under stress trying to save itself uh, reached beyond the privileged class of ordinary people and could actually speak to, uh, to everybody. And you know, the title ordinary people is, it has a certain kind of irony to it doesn't it? Because these are privileged people. They're not ordinary people. But the idea that I think Bob was attracted to in, in, in Guest's novel is the fact that, you know, sort of financial or social circumstances aside, the things that happen to, to families in difficult uh, situations are universal. And I think that by having it happen to a rather privileged family where the, the, the family issues of, you know, the lost son, the other son trying to commit suicide, uh, the cold mother, uh, the kind of confused father, that because this was happening to a family that you felt should have no problems at all because they were so privileged, it really kind of threw it into a very uh, high sense of relief for you to see. And, you know, Bob and I talked about that, and I think that that's what attracted him, as opposed to it being the conditions and the stresses of a, of a you know, more working-class family. Well, that leads me to something else I was wondering about, which is your initial conversations with Redford. Um, you know, did he come to the project with strong ideas about how you guys were going to visualize it, or was that something you had to develop together? Well, you know, one of the first things that, uh, that Bob explained to me was that he had studied as an artist and that he, you know, he could draw. He was, you know, curious whether I felt it would be very, very helpful for him to do drawings and sketches and so forth. And I told him if they, you know, if it helped him, that would be great. But, you know, I didn't necessarily need to do it. There were several times, I remember the bowling alley scene, for example, uh, where he actually did draw out a couple sketches and showed them to me in terms of, you know, how he saw a shot in perspective. But basically we talked things through and we talked about art because, you know, he loved art. As a matter of fact, as I recall, one of the things we did, we were basically shooting in the North Shore suburbs of Chicago. And at the time there was a huge Toulouse-Lautrec retrospective at the Art Institute and I saw it and I told Bob, you know, I think it'd be really great, not that it has anything to do with the film, but it's just a really important retrospective. And I knew of his, you know, interest in art. And so we were able to go there. I think, as I recall, 
the Art Institute opened the museum early on a Sunday morning for us to see the show. Bob couldn't go out in public, really. You know, he was it was, it was the height of his movie stardom, and he just couldn't go out and you know people would congregate and it would have created havoc in the exhibition. So no, we talked about art a lot, and I think it was one of the things that bonded us together was this kind of passionate love of art and feeling that it had a kind of spiritual connection to what we wanted to do in the film, even if there were no specific, you know, visual correlative. I mean, what does Toulouse-Lautrec really have to do with ordinary people? Were there any other references that you had, either that you talked about with Redford or that were in your own mind, in terms of were there other, you know, movies you watched or thought about or other visual references? Well, you know, one of the films that has always been a kind of touchstone for me is um, The Conformist, Bernardo Bertolucci's uh, movie that was, uh, you know, designed by Fernando Scarviati and photographed by, you know, one of my mentors, Vittorio Storaro. And I've always felt that, you know, Conformista was uh, one of the high points of the European New Wave. And it's sort of integration of all of the elements of a beautiful score, the design, costumes, obviously the lighting, and this in, in, incredible use of the camera. And uh, in a kind of disciplined way, you talk about, you know, you, you mentioned Ozu, Brisson, obviously. But this was a much freer, much more moving kind of camera. One of the things that always interested me about uh, uh, The Conformist was the ability to sort of use a kind of richness of camera movement and shot juxtaposition, but in the classical tradition of an Ozu or a Bergman or a Bresson. And that's what uh, we tried to do on Ordinary People, was not make it seem constricted, but make every shot seem as though not that it were inevitable, but that it was, it was very specific. And that keyed off a lot of the sense of the physical space of the house. You know, Mary Tyler Moore was the queen of the house. And she's a very buttoned down, constricted personality. And so I felt that a lot of the imagery, Bob and I talked about this, inside the house should reflect that. And so when we first go into the house and they come home from the play, early on, you see this kind of, you know, uh, locked off camera with very slight camera movement maybe as they come upstairs and go into the bedrooms so forth, you know, and it follows all the way through the film, which is juxtaposed with the kind of much more dynamic and looser style that we have when we're tracking, you know, Tim Hutton Conrad when he's at school, when he's dating, you know, things like that. So these are the kind of things we talked about. And, and Bob and I did talk about conformista, you know, about the conformist. And, you know, there are echoes of it in, in the film, you know, certainly the, the development and both that and Gordon Willis. I mean, the two influences I feel strongest uh, in ordinary people in terms of the cinematography are Gordon Willis and Storaro. And as sort of, I don't want to say incompatible, but as different, as contrasting as their styles seem, uh, I feel that I, f I tried at least to find a way to integrate the two styles in that movie. Well, it's interesting when you talk about the scenes in the house because I feel like in this movie the locations are so important. The sets, not just the house, but the psychiatrist's office. Um, you know, they really, they, the sets, you know, really kind of accentuate the emotions of the movie. And I was wondering 
what kind of collaboration you had with the production designer and what kinds of conversations you had uh, and how much input you had in terms of the design of those sets. Were you shooting on location? Were they sets? Basically, as I recall, almost everything, most of, most of, the, most of the sets were, were uh, practical locations. Parts of the house, the interior of the house were built. But the, the most important set uh, was uh, uh, the psychiatrist's office, Judd Hirsch's office, Berger. And uh, I felt that from the very beginning, and Bob and I talked about it with Michael Reeve, the production designer, because there were, I think, five sequences that uh, take place in that office. And they needed to have a different look. And, you know, I can go into the sort of rationale of that, but didn't want them all to look the same, you know, institutionalized or whatever. Because, in a way, uh, the scenes in Berger's office are the heart of the movie. And I've actually done this for uh, film classes before. You can actually excerpt those five scenes and put them together, and they essentially tell the story of the film from that very first tentative visit that he, he makes when uh, he goes in and uh, Berger is playing Vivaldi's The Four Seasons and it kind of goes awry, to that late night scene when Conrad has the breakthrough and realizes, you know, what did you do wrong? You hung on. So that was a very important set. And you know, I can I can tell you why and how we use that set if if you want. To. Yeah, definitely because I, I you know I think you're right that that is a you know sort of a key motif for turning to that office throughout the movie and you know there's a very different feel to the late scene after Conrad's friend kills herself versus early scenes and you know the, the light changes even your you know approach to the framing and the camera movement changes a little bit from scene to scene and i was wondering if you could yeah if you could get a little bit more specific about right. what your thinking was with those scenes i don't know exactly how it developed in terms of the conversations that bob and i had but in terms of each of those scenes feeling different and trying to find something other than just an arbitrary reason why they should be i locked in on the fact that conrad has to go after class on the after on the afternoons uh, he has to eventually give up, uh, you know, his swim classes. The film starts with the beginning of the fall term, which would be, what, September, and it ends in the Christmas, New Year's break. It just so happens that is the period after the equinox, you know, the, the fall equinox to the winter solstice, where the days get increasingly dramatically shorter. Now, with Conrad meeting at the same time of day, with Berger, we would see the passing of the weeks and the months in the office through a sense of each meeting being later in terms of not the time of day, but the feel of the light of the day. So Bob and I keyed off of that. And in the first scene, it's just normal afternoon. The second scene, it's a little later. The third scene was done at a kind of sunset look, the John Boy scene. And that is the scene that I feel is the most evocative of uh, Storaro lighting. And then the fourth scene is kind of a, a magic hour scene. And then the last one, the, the one late at night, is the one that I feel is the most influenced by Gordon Willis because that was done with a single source top light, a kind of coffin box, with the tiniest little bit of fill, you know, as they moved away from the center portion. Uh, you know, the center uh, the, uh, talking area, the chairs. The other thing we did is each of those five scenes 
were photographed with a slightly differing group of lenses. We started fairly wide and fairly wide image size. And that first scene, the Vivaldi scene, we mainly photographed uh, with like a 24 or 29. As I recall, even the over the shoulders were probably done with a 29 or 32 millimeter. As we got deeper into it, and by the time you get to the, uh, uh, the final scene, you know, the realization scene, the epiphany scene, uh, the camera was actually placed very far back from the actors. Sometimes we were photographing with 150 millimeter or 200 millimeter, which meant that the walls, because, you know, the, the office was what, uh, 15 by 15 feet or something like that. We had to pull the walls, and the camera was actually maybe 30 feet back, you know, which we could not have done in a, in a practical location. So what it did, uh, it, 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 in the early scene with the wider lenses, it creates a sense of distancing or a sense of remoteness between Berger and Conrad. By the end, that final scene where they end up embracing each other, and with those tight lenses, 150 millimeter lens, it kind of really sort of pushes them together in terms of the, the perspective, the shallow depth of field. So that was a, you know, what Bob and I talked about in terms of you know how we could use this one set and create a sense an evolving visual, dramatic uh, a portrait. And, uh, you know, I, it's something I'm still very proud of. As a matter of fact, uh, many years later, when I was interviewing with Wolfgang Peterson for In the Line of Fire, I told him, I said, you know, the heart of this movie is not the action. You're a great action director. The challenge here is how do you deal with the f six phone calls or whatever it is between Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich until they finally meet in this sort of claustrophobic elevator? And uh, I said, if we can find a way to make those phone calls visually interesting, then the rest of the film will take care of itself. And I told him, I said, you know, I explained to him what I just told you about how we did the psychiatrist scenes in Ordinary People. And, and it's not that we did, you know, something like that exactly, but I could see the light bulb go off in, in, um, uh, in his head. And he offered me the picture just almost instantly, you know, because I think I was able to give Wolfgang a window into what for him was probably the most difficult part of the film because you know he was not an American filmmaker he was a very visually action-oriented filmmaker and yet these phone calls are the essence of claustroph claustrophobic intimacy so I mean that 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 uh, held me in good stead you know it was many years later but and, and I've always thought about that in terms of you know how do you handle sequences throughout the course of a two-hour feature where you are using the same set over and over again. In a very different way, I had to make the same kind of decision in uh, The Way Way Back, most of which takes place in and around this beach house. And there were many times of day reflected in the living room of that beach house. And so I, I wanted to find with, uh, you know, with uh, Jim and uh, uh, Nat the two directors, you know, how we could create different looks, justify creating different looks in that house. Well, it speaks to something that I think is great about ordinary people in general. I mean, the whole movie, you've got basically, it, it, it's comprised of dialogue scenes between 
two, sometimes three people. And you have to keep that visually interesting without the camera getting in the way, which seems to me like it would be kind of a big challenge. And I was wondering, you know, was that a challenge and how did you strike that balance throughout the movie, not just the psychiatrist scenes, because it's very much a movie that really just consists of people in rooms talking. Well, you know, Jim, I think the first thing is, it, it's always about the script, isn't it? And so is the script, is, is the dialogue, is the, the interaction, is the, is the setup in the scene important enough and effective enough and engaging enough so that you don't have to do all kinds of tricks? And if the answer is yes, if your material is good, I think what you need to do is try to stay out of the way, not screw it up not take something that's already really good and try to impose some sort of auteurist visual aesthetic on it to say, hey, look at me. And that's what, you know, I, I got involved in filmmaking, not, not initially as a cinematographer, it kind of, you know, happened. Uh, but I, what attracted me were, was the drama of the human condition and particularly the intimate human condition in the films of Bergman and Antonioni and Truffaut. And, you know, I, I thought if, if I can find a way to uh, use the language of the camera and the simple tools to make that drama clear and moving, then that's all I need to do. You know, and uh, that's what has always and continues to fascinate me. You know, and A Walk in the Woods is the same thing. Now, it's largely an exterior film. And you have Nick Nolte and Robert Redford walking the Appalachian Trail. So there is movement, but a lot of times the movement is just following them, and it's done very simply. You know, I mean, none of us, and certainly the director, Ken Coapas, we want the script was fabulous. We didn't want to get in the way of the script. Well, I want to talk a little bit about A Walk in the Woods, actually, because as you mentioned, it's directed by Ken Quapis, but Redford is starring in it. And as far as I can remember, so is this the first time you worked with him since Ordinary People? Yes, yeah, it's the first time I worked with Bob since Ordinary People. Um, you know, there, there are all kinds of reasons why that happens, some of it, you know, in terms of, you know, time and things like that. But, you know, sometimes you just don't engage... Uh, for a long period of time. I've had, as you mentioned, a couple of uh, ongoing relationships that have, have been very effective. But, you know, a lot of times uh, uh, they've been one-off projects. I mean, you know, Wolfgang Peterson was one-off. Uh, Harold Ramis on Groundhog Day was one-off. Jim Brooks on As Good As It Gets. I, I was just, you know, I would love to work with Bob again as a, uh, as a, a director now that we've reconnected. We had a really good time together, and you know, we didn't spend a lot of time being nostalgic about ordinary people. But what I what I felt is, uh, even though those thirty five years had uh, kind of gone by in a flash, uh, I felt enormously close to him. You know, there are things that uh, that happen in the kind of uh, give and take and the intimacy of working with a director that just kind of stay with you. And you can come back many, many years and just sort of pick up and go on. Now, admittedly, you know, Bob wasn't directing this film and, and he was very, very much not wanting to be in the way of the direction. I mean, he, he was very restrained in that regard. 
which actually surprised me considering that it's a project that Bob Redford has been kind of developing uh, for a decade. I mean, it was like 10 years ago he optioned the book and he was going to do it as his third film uh, with Paul Newman. And then Paul got ill and eventually died. Uh, the film went through a kind of limbo period of development with other screenwriters and directors and finally at a point where it was sort of do or die, um, you know, um, Bob uh, offered the picture to Ken Quapis and Ken, you know, immediately came to me because uh, we'd already done five films together. And I was very excited, very excited. I'm, I'm still excited. I think it's going to be a, a very interesting film. And my wife, Carol Littleton, is editing the film, and she had worked with Ken almost 30 years ago uh, on one of his early films called Vibes that I also photographed, and Carol hadn't worked with Ken since then. So, you know, these things happen. You know, you can have a relationship with a, a filmmaker, and 20 years later, you come back, and you sort of pick up and move on. It's just, it's amazing, you know, the the bonds that happen sometime, they're kind of, it's kind of like blood, like family. I'm curious, did reconnecting with Redford and working with him again make you see ordinary people or your experience with him as a director any differently? Yeah, I mean, you know, working with Bob again obviously brought back a sense of, uh, of uh, remembering the film. Not that I've ever really forgotten it because it's a touchstone. Film students and young people all the time you know, when I'm in a public session, come up to me and say, that film was so important in terms of a crucial point of, you know, coming of age or crisis in my own life or anything. So the film has always had uh, kind of a heartbeat in my soul, you know. Uh, it, it, I've never felt nostalgic about it. It's always been very much alive. There, there are elements about it that I, I continue to address, I think, in my work. I don't feel I answered your question. Go back and ask me again. <laughs> Just more about if you saw the movie end or Redford any differently now, having worked with him again and reconnected after so many years. I think one of the things when I saw Bob after all these years that uh, amazed me was just how much he looks like Robert Redford. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I joked with him. I said, uh, knowing that he's a painter and that he studied art, you know, art and everything, I said, you know, you sure you don't have a, a dripping self-portrait hanging in the closet somewhere, a portrait of Dorian Gray, uh, because he's, there's something about him that is ageless, you know, and there are moments in the film where he turns and looks and the light catches him in a certain way, and I swear he looks like he's about 25 years old, you know. I mean, Bob's lived outdoors, you know, he's been in the sun a lot, he's an outdoorsman, he's, you know, there's a certain kind of, you know, weathered quality, uh, and he's, you know, he's in his mid-70s. Uh, but there's something that's so childlike uh, about him. And I don't mean that in terms of innocence. I mean it in terms of energy and enthusiasm. I mean, the amount of stuff he does with his life. I mean, you know, the narration alone, which most people don't know about, the narration he does on dozens and dozens of documentaries, the documentaries he underwrites and supports. He's executive producer on a documentary I'm involved with now, Pamela Green documentary about the uh, uh, early woman director, Alice Guy Blachet, who was a, a contemporary of Melies and Lumiere's, and most people don't know who she was. Bob's deeply involved in that. Uh, he just did a, a documentary uh, on the Salk Institute part of a compendium film um, uh, on uh, 
uh, architecture. Uh, you know, he just does so much. His work as a director, you know, as a filmmaker, I think he's done what he's directed eight or ten films, and you know, they're all they're all worthwhile films. They're all films. There's nothing frivolous about any of them. And you know, some of those films are really crucial films. I happen to think that Quiz Show is one of the great underappreciated American films. You know, you know, it should be on the National Film Registry. You know? Yeah, I agree. It, we touched on the fact that he, in a way, was sort of an atypical first-time director and that he logged you know, countless hours on sets as an actor and, and, and all that. But is there something different uh, you know, about your job when you're working with a first-time director like that as opposed to when you come on a movie like In the Line of Fire with Wolfgang Peterson, who's gotten a lot more movies under his belt? Um, does your job change at all? Do you feel different responsibilities to a first-time director than you do when you're working with someone more experienced? Uh, you know, Jim, I think the thing that I find most fascinating about first-time directors is like first-time novelists. There is so much that is in that screenplay and in the ambition that the first-time director has. And in a lot of cases, that first film uh, is um, from a screenplay by the director. Not that they're necessarily an inexperienced filmmaker. They a lot of times they're previous writers who have had successful screenplays and they've been able to promote it into a directing deal or something like that. But you know, lightning can't strike twice in the same way. A first film is always a first film. And I found that the energy and the enthusiasm and the vision of the material and the the dream of what they want to do with that. Uh, is is a province of a first-time director that just can never quite happen the same way again. And I find it usually so focused and so intense that it more than compensates for any on lack of onset experience. Not always. I mean, sometimes a first-time director will be incredibly rigid about the so-called vision that he or she has. I've had that happen too. And my feeling about first-time directors is it's, it's usually um, one way or the other. It, it's, you know, it, it's sort of, uh, it, it's either somebody that is very rigid and dogmatic or somebody that is confident in the vision that he or she has and is willing to let other people in to take it to the next step. So it, it's usually, it, it's not a middle-of-the-road experience usually working with a first-time director. It's either very good or very bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something else about ordinary people, you know, watching it again recently that struck me was, you know, the film is just so filled with extremely raw, emotional, uncomfortable scenes. And I was wondering if your job as a cinematographer, it changes in terms of the actors on a movie like that. I mean, a film like that that's so actor-driven and where it's, you know, as you said, the script is really kind of paramount. Um, What's your role as a cinematographer in terms of creating the environment where the actors can do that kind of work? I, I think that environment uh, needs to be um, safe. And one of the things I've always you know, tried to do is not be overly ambitious in what I'm trying to do with the lighting or the camera in scenes that are highly emotional. You know, I mean, you kind of have to sort of stand back and say, Regardless of what you want to do with the camera or whatever dream you have about a composition or anything, what is crucial here is 
that the actor and the director have the space and the comfort zone that when they put themselves out there and throw themselves into an unpredictable sort of uh, space, literally sometimes, they don't even know where they're going or something, that, they, that you will be there for them and that they'll be safe and that you will get on film what it is they're trying to do. And so that is, you know, that was one of the real challenges, I think, of ordinary people, uh, of maintaining an aesthetic of the camera and the composition that seemed like it was controlled and premeditated uh, and, you know, aesthetic, had an aesthetic design to it. And yet, at those moments where uh, the drama overtook any of that, that you would also be able to have that. And in retrospect, I'm not quite sure, you know, how we were able to pull it off, you know, because, you know, it was very early in my career and the things I've been talking to you about were not things that were already clearly defined for me. They were very embryonic. And I was just, I was exploring, you know, in the same way Bob was exploring. But I had an enormous sense of uh, confidence as, I, as I, I did say on the way, way back, you know, with Jim and Nat, because they're actors themselves. And there's something about, if you're doing a film with a first-time director who is also an actor, or maybe any time you're de dealing, you know, with a, a director who's also an actor, uh, as, as, you know, as in the case of Groundhog Day, uh, that there is a, you know, there, there's a sense of bedrock comfort that you have because you know that the director will be able to work with the actors and give the actors the sense of security that they will be able to do their best work. And that's not always the case with, you know, directors that are more auteurist oriented, especially, you know, as we see more and more of now, as you know, uh, directors who are actually frustrated cinematographers and there are a lot of them out there, you know, that uh, they, they look at the actors as sort of, you know, furniture they have to move around with words coming out of their mouth. Uh, but there is no love or real understanding or engagement with the actors. And I think it's one of the th biggest problems we have now with so many films, even films that, you know, want to be adult themes. There's so little sense of understanding so little sense of trust and confidence in the part of the directors with the actors that they overcover and overcut the movies. So you have this constant stream of disruptive images, cut, cut, cut. And my feeling is, and this is what I learned from Bergman and Antonioni and Truffaut, uh, Bresson, is you, you make a cut when it adds something or when you're forced to, you know, an actor goes up or something like that. But you don't arbitrarily cut for the sake of establishing your own notion of an aesthetic design. And I think one of the great problems with American filmmaking now is that even in some of our adult-themed movies, we, uh, uh, we are just cutting so much that, uh, that true emotional involvement on the part of the viewer is becoming very, very difficult. Yeah, well, I think one of the strengths of Ordinary People is that you and Redford had the confidence 
to go basically in the exact opposite direction of that. There are a lot of scenes in Ordinary People that have very little what you would consider to be conventional coverage, um, you know, especially I'm thinking some of the conversations between Timothy Hutton's character and Mary Tyler Moore, you know, you really let them play out in just kind of long two shots. And in those scenes, it really increases this sense of, you know, uncomfortable tension between the two. And then there are other scenes where you get a different effect by doing the same thing. Like there's a scene where Timothy Hutton and Elizabeth McGovern are walking home from school together and you also don't cut around very much. It's basically an extended two shot. And there the kind of giddy teenage awkwardness of the romance is allowed to play out more. And was that something that you guys were, you know, very conscious of and planned ahead of time? Or did you kind of discover that language on set or? You know, I don't think Bob and I necessarily planned that ahead of time, but I think that as an actor, director, and knowing and having developed the script as long as he had, I think he had absolute confidence in the material, and certainly as an actor-director, confident confidence in his ability to sort of get the best out of you know, his actors without having to sort of overcover. And of course, if he got it from them, you know, if they were there and they had what he felt was inherent in the scene, he knew it and we could move on. And we wouldn't have to do three other sizes to say, oh, you know, I'm not sure we have it. Which is another problem that we have with so many directors today, especially so many directors that essentially have come out of episodic television where essentially you, you know, just do every shot you can think of in the period of time you have. It's when, you know, my wife Carol calls uh, hosing it down, you know, and you use three or four cameras. Gordon Willis you know, called it dump truck directing, yeah, I dump, think. <laughs> dump truck directing, yeah. Yeah, hosing it down, you know. And unfortunately, it's an aesthetic that is undermining the very essence of cinematography. Because, uh, you know, I mean, you look at the great classical studio uh, films of the 30s and 40s, you know. I just saw recently, not one of John Ford's best-known films, and I'm not even saying, you know, one of his best or most... Uh, overlooked, but there's a film he did, uh, I think in 1937, uh, called uh, Mary of Scotland, about Queen Mary, um, with Catherine Hepburn. Joe August photographed it. And I mean, my God, every shot is just so well conceived and so well done that it takes a piece of material uh, that is of, you know, sort of whatever, you know, a good quality, but nothing spectacular. And it elevates the film into a kind of very watchable, almost compulsively, compulsively watchable movie. And, I, you know, I find that so interesting that you, you, if you really think about what it is you want to do, and I'm not saying you walk in in the morning with a shot list and you walk in knowing you know, I got to do this, I got to do this, to put the scene together this way. No, it's really being alive in the moment and seeing what is happening on the set and having the flexibility to sort of like, you know, live in the progress of the scene. And that's a, you know, that's a really interesting thing, I think. And I think that this is something that young cinematographers should understand and, and work. They should read, they should go to the theater, they should understand the organic life of, of the drama. So that if they understand it and they're comfortable with that language, 
they can then go in as a cinematographer, see that happen in front of them during the course of the day, and respond to it in a creative way. I think that's a great point to uh, finish on, John. So thank you so much for, for talking with me about uh, Ordinary People. This has been Jim Hemphill and John Bailey ASC for the American Cinematographer Podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.